All right, great singing tonight. Let's take our Bibles and turn to the book of Revelation, chapter 18. The book of Revelation, chapter 18 in our Bibles. If you've been peeking ahead at all, you know there are only 22 chapters in this book. And uh, I think uh, we're making good progress. I hope you've learned a lot. I imagine some questions have probably come to your mind as we've looked at different portions of this book. It's really an incredible, like all the books of the Bible, but it's an incredible book in the Bible. Of course, it's not just a story. It's not make-believe. It's not fictional. Um, it, wasn't, it wasn't written by man. It was penned down by the Apostle John, but it, it's written by God. And uh, the words are infallible. They're without error. And uh, it really is an incredible book. Uh, Revelation chapter 18, you remember now, we're, we've been looking here a couple of weeks ago, we were in chapter 17, and we saw this uh, uh, description of a um, religious system that has existed since the Tower of Babel. It is of the devil, it's satanic, I think I can say that without question, and it really is all the false religions of the world. Um, that have rejected the Lord Jesus Christ and have rejected the word of God. They've substituted for uh, works, for repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ alone. And it really is a dangerous uh, religion. And um, it's, it's ecumenical. That is in the sense of uh, there are a lot of different people all working together. Um, and uh, and it, they're going to give... The uh, Antichrist, his power, and they're going to help him get his power. And then there's going to come a point at the midpart of the tribulation where he's going to throw them off this religious system, and, and, and this religious system is going to be destroyed. And, and I'll not go any further into that. We looked at that in detail in Revelation chapter 17. Now we come to Revelation chapter 18, and we find another description. The term Babylon, the name Babylon is used, and in Revelation chapter 18, we find a description of a city, a, uh, a, a, a literal city that's going to exist during the tribulation period, and uh, she's going to be destroyed completely. And really, she represents the economic system of the Antichrist, and um, political system of the Antichrist. Chapter 17 is the religious system. Chapter 18 is the economic and political system, all found in one city that will be at that time during the tribulation period functioning almost as a capital city of the world for a one world government at that time. And let's read about it. We'll start it in chapter 18, verse number 1. I'm going to read down through verse number 24, though I don't I intend to cover all of that tonight. Revelation chapter 18, verse number 1 says this, after, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon the great is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils. So demonic habitation and the hold of every foul spirit and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. 
And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out from her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. Reward her even as she rewarded you, and double unto her, double according to her works, in the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. How much she hath glorified herself, and lived deliciously, so much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit as a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and live deliciously with her shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for the fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. And the merchants of the earth shall weep and mourn over her, for no man buyeth their merchandise any more. The merchandise of gold and silver and precious stones and of pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and all the thion wood and all manner of vessels of ivory and all manner of vessels of most precious wood and of brass and iron and marble and cinnamon and odors and ointments and frankincense and wine and oil and the fine flour and wheat and beasts and sheep and horses and chariots and slaves and souls of men. And the fruits that thy soul lusted after are departed from thee. And all things which were dainty and goodly are departed from thee, speaking of the city of Babylon. And thou shalt find them no more at all. The merchants of these things which were made rich by her stand afar off from for the fear of her torment, weeping and wailing and and saying, Alas! Alas, that great city that was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. For in one hour so great riches is come to naught. And every shipmaster and all the company and ships and sailors, as many as trade by sea, stood afar off and cried when they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like unto this great city? And they cast dust on their heads and cried, weeping and wailing, saying, Alas, alas, that great city wherein we made rich all that had ships in the sea by reason of her costliness. For in one hour she is made desolate. Verse 20, there's another group. You see three groups there. You see the the kings of the earth wailing and mourning over her destruction. You see the merchants. And isn't it interesting, all of the goods that are listed there, the merchants would have a good idea of the goods. They're going to wail and mourn over her destruction because it's going to affect them. And then the, the, uh, the mariners or the, the sea merchants and the sailors, they mourn and weep and wail over her destruction. Uh, that's three groups, mourning and weeping and wailing. But then there's another group that rejoices. Notice verse 20. Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you. On her. And a mighty angel took up a stone like a great millstone and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall that great city Babylon be thrown down, and shall be found no more at all. 
And the voice of harpers and musicians and of pipers and trumpeters shall be heard no more at all in thee. So it's a, it's a city of, of, wonder, uh, of, of uh, music, I should say. And it's not going to be heard anymore. And no craftsman of whatsoever craft it be shall be found any more in thee. And the sound of a millstone shall be heard no more at all in thee. And the light of a candle shall shine no more at all in thee. And the voice of the bridegroom and of the bride shall be heard no more at all in thee. For thy merchants were the great men of the earth. For by thy sorceries were all nations deceived. And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. Now this city, I believe with all my heart, it's going to be a literal city. And it seems to me it's going to be built where Babylon once was. And so we're dealing in chapter 18 with a literal city that's going to be built, and it's going to be so incredible, as the sailors mention in the passage, they, they, they ask the question, or they make the statement, the observation, this great city being destroyed, there's no city on the earth as great as this city. Now, we could think about cities of the earth today that are considered great, maybe like New York City, or maybe like London, or Tokyo. Um, they're incredible cities, they are. But there's coming a day where there's this city, Babylon, is going to be rebuilt. And it's not going to be rebuilt in the sense of, of uh, the way it used to be. It's going to be rebuilt in a sense of the way it would be built in our day. And it's going to be an incredible city. But in one day, it's going to be destroyed uh, by God Almighty. And for what reason? Well, I, if you weren't here for the, the message in the, in the teaching and the study on chapter 17, I would encourage you to go back and listen to that sermon. Because in that passage, it really talks to us and teaches us about religious Babylon. Uh, a religion that goes back. It's not, it's not merely Roman Catholicism or Buddhism or Hinduism. It's something that is bigger than any one of them. And it goes all the way back hundreds of years before the Lord Jesus Christ ever was born. And uh, we talk about that. We talked about that and studied that in great detail. So I don't want to spend too much time going backward. But but this religion Babylon is connected to the city of Babylon, and they have persecuted God's people mercilessly, um, and they have rejected the truth of the word of God. And there's coming a day where the judgment of God all, of Almighty God is going to fall upon this city, and it really is for many, going to be a horrible day. And uh, we'll see that as we go along. Let's pray. We'll ask God for wisdom as we read these things that will give us understanding, and then we'll, uh, we'll look at it together. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, help us tonight. Father, help us as we look at your word. Make some things clear to us. Connect some dots for us. Help us to understand your word. So only your Holy Spirit can do that in our hearts and your word. So may that be the case. And Father, I pray that we would not follow in the footsteps of this city um, a religion, a way of thinking that has existed for thousands of years. May, Lord, we not be caught up in that. But Father, may we be true to you and your Son and your Word and your Holy Spirit. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I want you to hold your place in Revelation 18, and I want you to go back all the way to the book of Genesis 
Would you do that? Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9. In Genesis chapter 9, the flood, the global flood of the earth is over. And Noah and his family, his three sons, Noah and his wife, his three sons, and their, each one of them had a wife. They have survived the flood. And in Genesis chapter 9, in verse 1, God blesses Noah, and he gives instruction to Noah and to his sons. Look there, just in verse 1, in Genesis 9, in verse 1, it says, And God blessed Noah and his sons, and said unto them, Be fruitful, and multiply, and replenish the earth. And the idea is not only to have children, but to spread out and to inhabit the earth. Now look with me over to Genesis chapter 11. Genesis chapter 11. Now some time has gone by. You just flipped one or two pages. (laughs) But a a lot of time has passed between the commandment that was given in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1 and the words that are penned down for us in Genesis chapter 11, 1 and following. When we come to Genesis chapter 11 in verse 1, we find that there are a lot of people on the earth. And there's one particular individual. He's a king. His name is Nimrod, as given in the word of God. And he was a hunter king, and he was a powerful king and a leader of men. And uh, we find in this passage that Nimrod leads people... Uh, to build a city and to erect a tower that we know of as the Tower of Babel. Now, again, what we've been studying in Revelations chapter 17 and 18, um, we talked a little bit about Babylonian mysticism. That's that religion that was born out of Babylon. It's satanic in nature. It's in, in rebellion against the word of God and against the truth of God's word. Uh, Chapter 17 talks about that religious system in detail. Now, chapter 18 talks about Babylon being rebuilt. Well, it goes all the way back to Genesis. In chapter 11, here in verse 1, where I'll read for you, beginning in verse 1, and the whole earth was one language. Imagine what that might be like. You could fly to China and you just speak whatever that one world language was. The whole earth was one language and of one speech. And it came to pass, as they journeyed from the east, that they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they dwelt there. Now, that would be modern-day Iraq. They dwelt there, and they said one to another, Go to, let us make brick, and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone, and slime they had for mortar. And they said, Go to, let us build us a city, and a tower, whose top may reach unto heaven, And let us make us a name, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Now, isn't that what God wanted them to be? He wanted them to go about the whole earth and to replenish the earth. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower, which the children of men builded. And the Lord said, Behold, the people is one. And by the way, there's a strong movement in our day for a one-world economy. One world language, so to speak. And, and God looks at this and says, Behold, the people is one, and they have all one language, and this they begin to do. And now nothing will be restrained from them which they have imagined to do. 
Go to, let us go down there and confound their language, God says, that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from thence upon the face of all the earth, and they left off to build the city. They didn't finish it. Therefore is the name of it called Babel, uh, because the Lord did there confound the language of all the earth, and from thence did the Lord scatter them abroad upon the face of all the earth. Now I want you to look back to verse 4 before we move on from this passage and go back to Revelation 18. But notice again in verse 4, and I want you to notice several statements that they make in this verse. And they said, go to, let us build us a city and a tower whose top may reach unto heaven and let us make us a name. Now that's not pride, right? Let us make us a name, a reputation, lest we be scattered abroad upon the face of the whole earth. Really, what we read there in that passage is a blatant act of disobedience against God's command that he had given them in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 1. And really, Nimrod, as their king, he leads a united people to rebel against God. And so is birthed this false religion and this false or this rebellious policy that we find in Revelation chapter 18. They aim to build a city. They aim to build a tower. They aim to make a name for themselves. Their goal, their aim is to not be dispersed, lest we be scattered abroad through the whole earth. And yet that is what God wanted them to do. But their goal was to do that which was against what God had told them to do. So they do build a city, or part of one. They do begin to build a tower. They're trying to make a name for themselves. They're trying not to be dispersed. And their sin, their sin was a a love of praise. Their sin was a love of security. A love of praise. They wanted to be known by any other people around, how powerful they were. Look what we can do. Smart, ingenious. Look how wonderful and and intellectual we are. Organized to be able to all accomplish this together. And it's interesting that God directly defeats them on that very front. To the point where they can't even communicate with each other. And they just give up on the whole idea. A love of praise. A, A love of security. City walls. Unified. A show of strength. Everybody able to work together and accomplish something. Prepared for anything. And so we see the sin of arrogance and pride and presumption. Arrogance, as if they don't need God. Presumption, as if, if God is real, we can make a deal with him. Now I'm going to come back to that toward the end of our passage. It's relevant to what we're talking about. But look back to Revelation chapter 18. Because we see the very marks... Uh, in Revelation chapter 18, in this incredible city. And I want to emphasize that. This is not a half-baked city. Uh, This is a city that is the most wonderful, marvelous, incredible city. It will be that kind of a city in the world at the time in which it exists. It will be the most wonderful city the world has ever seen. But in that city are the very same characteristics that were in Babylon or at the Tower of Babel, I should put it that way. Arrogance, 
you know, God, if you really exist, that's fine, but you know what, we're going to do our own thing. And presumption, if you do, if you are real God, then, then we'll uh, barter with you. We'll, we'll work out a deal with you. We'll do some things for you. You do some things for us. And, uh, and that's how they operate. These same marks are found in this city in Revelation 18. Uh, three observations from this passage. Number one are the reasons for the fall of this city, Babylon. Why would God destroy such a city like this? Uh, Revelation chapter 18, notice in verse 1. It says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lightened with his glory. Uh, Now, in a very real way, and I want to point this out right up front, the city Babylon is going to reap what this Babylonian system, both religious and economic and political, has sown for thousands of years, okay? Remember, remember, this is for you and for me today. We reap what we sow. It is a biblical truth. What you sow, you reap. Um, I can remember my mom talking to me about that. You know, don't tell dad. Please, don't tell dad. <laughs> He's, I'm going to tell your dad when you get home. No, don't, don't tell dad. Please, go ahead. Here's the, here's the switch. Spank me right now, mom. You know, don't tell dad. And her telling me, Seth, you reap what you sow. Mm. You know, none of us really like that principle in our flesh. We all wish we could just go through life making decisions, financial decisions, and not have to reap what we sow. Or whatever the decisions may be. But it is a reality of life. And keep that in mind. That is a biblical truth. It isn't original with my mom. It's not original with you. God is a principle of the word of God. You reap what you sow. Young people, you reap what you sow. Make sure you're sowing correctly. So, Knowing that we reap what we sow, there are three reasons given why this thriving city is destroyed. And I want to just walk through this passage, beginning in verse 2. I noticed that the reason for the fall of Babylon is because Babylon uh, is because of the depravity of her sin. Uh, Secondly, we'll see it's because of the depth of her sin. And then thirdly, we'll see it's because of the deception of her sin. In verse 2, we see that Babylon is destroyed because of the depravity of her sin. Verse 2. And he cried mightily with a strong voice, saying, Babylon, the great, is fallen, is fallen, and has become the habitation of devils, and the hold of every foul spirit, and a cage of every unclean and hateful bird. So in the, just in verse 2, we see that the city of Babylon is depraved because she will be given over to demonic activity and corruption. In Daniel's day, uh, remember Daniel in the lion's den? That was Babylon. That's where he was at. In Daniel's day, Babylon had its soothsayers and astrologers and magicians. And all were a part of Babylonian mysticism, the occult, demonic activity. And there seems to be a current, by the way, there seems to be a current movement, a revival, I could say, uh, of cults in our generation. Satanism, spiritism, occultism, witchcraft, astrology seem to be on the rise. And why is this? Well, they're all going to gravitate toward this literal rebuilt city, Babylon. And here's the reason why there's a rise, uh, those things are on the rise, I believe. Because modern sciences, modern science can never fix 
It can never cure the diseases of the soul, of the human soul. And so in our day, there is a movement, and I believe it's happening in our day now, there is this there's this return to these sort of religions. And by the way, because people are realizing that modern medicine and uh, science cannot deliver the problems of the soul, there's also, in some ways, I believe, an awakening. Some people, if they turn to the Lord Jesus Christ and the Word of God, that is wonderful. But those who reject it, are trying to find help in these things that Babylonian mysticism is all about. Uh, Notice verse number 3. Verse 3. For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication, and the kings of the earth have committed fornication with her, and the merchants of the earth are waxed rich through the abundance of her delicacies. And so we have in verse 3 this word fornication. So, the kings of the earth have entered into relationship with the city of Babylon, is what he's talking about. This city of Babylon is depraved really because of her immorality. She's going to be cutting edge. The rest of the cities of the world are going to look to her as an example that they should follow. The world, the world is going to rejoice in her liberation from morality, from prudence. I asked a group of people not long ago, how many of you, when you think of the word prudence, you think of a good time? And um, the response was similar to yours, like, not really. But prudence is a good thing. It really is. And so the world's going to rejoice. She's been liberated from morality, from prudence, from the word of God, from truth. Truth is relative. It will be... Uh, That's what they'll say in that day. But we know that truth is not relative. It is absolute. Thus saith the Lord. What the word of God says is true. It is right. It is pure. It is just. It is holy. But in that day, they're going to say, there's no truth. It's relative. It's whatever you want it to be. And so the world's going to look at her as as this cutting-edge city that's been liberated from these things, these old-fashioned things. And the rest of the world is going to follow her lead. Economic leaders throughout the world are going to seek to get rich by doing business with her. And that's what he's talking about here in verse number 3. The cities will be wealthy. This city will be wealthy beyond description. And it will attract the world's commerce to itself. The leaders of other cities and countries of the world will commit fornication with her as they compromise the independence of their cities and their countries for economic and political opportunity with the city of Babylon. So the reason for the fall of Babylon will be because of her depravity in verse 2. It will be because of the depth of her sin in verses 4 and 5, and I think even in verse 6. Notice in In verse 4, the rebellion and idolatry of this city runs very, very deep. Verse 4. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye be not partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not of her plagues. Now, it's interesting to me here, I don't know that there are many believers living there, but apparently there are going to be some. Some who have somehow survived the holocaust of believers that will take place during the second half of the tribulation period. 
The sin of this city is enticing. And by the way, sin for the most part is always enticing. But the few believers left on earth at this time are warned to have nothing to do with this wicked system, this wicked city. And all that is in the city of Babylon is condemned by God, its trade and business. The people of God will be faced with a decision. They can either partake of her sins or they can separate from her sinfulness and they will have to choose to resist the enticements of this city of Babylon. Uh, look in verse number 5. The sin of this city is far-reaching. Verse 5. For her sins have reached unto heaven, and God hath remembered her iniquities. You know, when a person repents of their wicked sin, and all sin is wicked, and they turn to the Lord and receive Jesus Christ as their personal Savior, it is beautiful. It is marvelous. It's a miracle. It's wonderful when a person repents. That is, they change their mind. They stop believing and turning to the things of this world to try to fix and, and, and remedy the problems that they're facing in their way of life. And it is a miracle of God when they turn away from self-sufficiency and self-dependence and turn to the God of the Bible and say, God, would you save me? That is a wonderful, marvelous thing. And when we think of that picture, we can think of a city that turned to God that way, the city of Nineveh. How many of you went on the Brian trip, uh, with the Brian trip to uh, Lancaster County? Did you enjoy that? It was pretty wonderful, wasn't it? And uh, it was, I'll tell you what, I, I was able to see it earlier this summer. And, and they, in Lancaster County, they have what's called the Millennium Theater, and they have this I don't know how many people and actors are involved and people who sing. And it is really incredible to see. And I think that they had uh, uh, the uh, 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 prop, okay, for the ship that Jonah was thrown overboard off of. And if I remember right, wasn't it, didn't they say it was over 30 tons or 20 tons, the prop? And it was controlled by GPS, okay? I mean, really cool. And it's rocking, you know, and the wind's blowing, and they end up throwing him overboard, okay? Uh, you know the story of Jonah, right? And, uh, and, uh, and yet, what was neat to me about that play that they brought out, and it really moved me, and, and, it, and, and this part of that play was accurate to the Word of God, is the awakening that took place in the city of Nineveh. Hundreds of thousands of people lived in the city of Nineveh. Hundreds of thousands of people, Assyrians, Wicked people, godless people. And Jonah wasn't exactly the most upright of prophets and preachers to preach the word of God to them. But he preached the word of God to them and they heard it and they were pricked in their hearts and they repented of their sins. And their answer was, who can tell if God will be merciful to us? And in the play, they make that part a musical and they're all singing, and I'm not going to do it, okay? But they're singing, and they're rejoicing in the forgiveness of God. And you know what? I had never really seen it or imagined it quite the way they portrayed it in the play. But I have to say, I was having to wipe some tears away from my eyes as I just thought again of the possibility, and not just uh, in our day, the possibility, but not just the possibility in our day, but of an event that has happened when a whole city of people, of wicked, idolatrous, rebellious people, heard the word of God, and they turned from sin to God, the living God. And he pardoned them, and he had mercy upon them. And so do not forget that about God as we ponder this portion of Scripture. 
It really is amazing and wonderful when a people turn away from their sin to righteousness. Psalm 103 and verse 12 says, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. God will do that. He will do that for you. Many of us in this room, he has done that for you. He did that for the people of Nineveh, a whole city. And he will do that for people today. And he will do that as we have studied during the the tribulation period. He will do that during the tribulation period. Hebrews talks about the forgiveness of God. In Hebrews 10 and verse 17, it says, And their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Do you realize, if you're a born-again child of God, that God has chosen to forgive your sins because you've accepted his sacrifice, that he has made for our sins the blood of Jesus Christ, his son dying on the cross. And do you realize that God has chosen and predetermined that he will not remember your sins. He is choosing not to hold you accountable for your sins or me for my sins because his son, Jesus Christ, paid the price for our sins in full. That is an amazing thought. And not one of us in this room deserve that. That's the kind of forgiveness and mercy and grace that our God will show. But it is terrible when a person or a nation persists in their sin. There comes a time when the sin of a people reaches all the way to heaven. And that sin demands the righteous response of a holy God. Remember the world in the day, the day of Noah. And Noah was the only man who found grace in the sight of God. The only man who walked by faith. And by the way, in that day, the world was populated. There were a lot of people living on the earth. It wasn't just one village. And God flooded the entire earth, and he judged them for their sins. I'm also reminded of the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah. And as we were reminded of this week, as our evangelist preached and taught the word of God to us, had you ever thought about that, that had Lot's family... Had they been walking with the Lord, that Sodom would have been spared? Had you ever thought about that? Have you ever contemplated that? If just he had been able to lead his family. And there weren't ten righteous people in that city. And God destroyed it by fire and brimstone from heaven. You know, God is long-suffering. He is patient. God is full of mercy. God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. God is gracious. But there is coming a day when sin will be punished with the full wrath and the full fury of a holy, almighty God. And it will be a terrible day for those who have rejected him. Notice in verse number 6, we see the sin of this city will be judged severely. Verse number 6. It says, reward her even as she, talking about the city, rewarded you. And notice how she is going to be rewarded. Double unto her double, according to her works. In the cup which she hath filled, fill to her double. Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9. The psalmist prayed an imprecatory prayer. And an imprecatory prayer 
in the Old Testament was when an Old Testament believer would ask God to judge someone else. Now, I'm going to put it in context a little bit, because when we hear that in our day, we're kind of like, whoa, well, that just doesn't seem right to us. Um, but, but let me put it in context just a little bit. In Psalm 137, verses 8 and 9, listen to how they prayed. O daughter of Babylon, talking about Babylon, who art to be destroyed, already prophesied, happy shall he be that rewardeth thee as thou hast served us. In other words, they're saying God's going to be happy to destroy you. Now that doesn't ring quite right with us, does it? Verse 9. Happy shall he be that taketh and dasheth thy little ones against the stones. I'm going to put that in context. You might remember how the Babylonians had utterly destroyed Israel and sacked Jerusalem. Do you remember? You remember Daniel being taken captive by the Babylonians? Nebuchadnezzar? The Babylonians were exceedingly cruel and violent people. The people of Israel had pled with God to repay Babylon for what she had done to them. And by the way, Jewish law demanded an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And it was a just law. And it was a righteous law. The people of Israel suffered greatly at the hands of the Babylonians. The Jews had picked up the broken, lifeless bodies of their little children that the Babylonians had killed. And if I can say it this way, they might have held the bodies of their lifeless, broken bodies of their lifeless children up to the Lord and said, God, a life for a life. That is the idea of that passage. Now we're studying in chapter 18 of Revelation, this new city of Babylon to be built someday in the future is going to be the heir of the sins of Nimrod's Babylon. It's going to be the heir of the sins of King Nebuchadnezzar's Babylon. Do you understand what I'm saying now? It's one thing to be an heir of something good. It's another thing to be an heir, the recipient of something that's been piling up in a horrible way and something that's very terrible and bad. This wicked city, Babylon, will not merely face the justice of God, an eye for an eye, a life for a life, It's going to face the the, the vengeance of God. Not just an eye for an eye, but double. Three times, you'll see it there in verse number six. Three times in one short verse, double unto her, double according to her works. And so we see the reasons for Babylon's fall. The depravity of her sin in verse two, the depth of her sin in verses four through six. And then the deception of her sins, verses 7 and 8. Look there with me, if you would, verses 7 and 8. How much she hath glorified herself. Now that sounds an awful lot like we read back in Genesis chapter 11. How much she hath glorified herself and lived deliciously. So much torment and sorrow give her. For she saith in her heart, I sit as a queen. I am no widow. I shall see no sorrow. In other words, I can live however I want, I can do whatever I want, and nobody, I I am accountable to no one, I will never pay for what I do. Verse 8, therefore, because of her attitude, because of her actions, therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God. Who judgeth her. 
Babylon is destroyed because of the deception of her sins. Arrogance and presumption are at the heart of her sin. It was at the heart of this Babylonian movement all the way to the time of the Tower of Babel. And it has existed since then throughout human history. It has infiltrated and involved itself in different religions throughout the world, different governments. And I'm not a conspiracy theorist, just taking God at his word. And many, many people have been defiled by her sin. Babylon will be increased with goods. She will think that she has need of nothing. And somehow through the tribulation, she's going to thrive. And even to the point where she's pridefully exclaiming in her heart that she will see no sorrow, but she is deceived. And you know, sometimes you and I are deceived. We shouldn't be so surprised when we talk about a whole city being deceived, a group of people who don't believe in God and and don't believe in his word. Sometimes you and I are deceived. Sometimes you and I have been told what is right, we know what the right thing to do is, and yet we allow ourselves to be talked into something by others, or maybe even by our own heart, and we come to a different conclusion, different than the word of God. And we decide, you know what, I'm going to go ahead and do this. I really think this is, you know, it's rational, and it's pragmatic, and, you know, it doesn't really line up, but, you know, the Bible was written a long time ago, and so I'm going to do this. And sometimes you and I are deceived. And this city is deceived. And the judgment and vengeance of Almighty God is going to come sweeping through her streets, her streets, and she's going to be crushed. Uh, notice the reactions to the fall of Babylon. There really are only two basic reactions to the fall of Babylon. Many are going to, mo- going to mourn for the destruction of Babylon. And I mentioned this earlier, the kings are going to mourn, the kings of the earth. And the merchants, the businessmen of the earth are going to mourn. Because it, in some way we might say it's going to be kind of like a, you're going to, they're going to lose everything in their investments in her. And then the mariners of the earth will mourn. Notice in verses 9 and 10, the merchants of the earth mourn and weep. And the kings of the earth who have committed fornication and lived deliciously with her. In other words, they've benefited from her, shall, shall bewail her and lament for her when they shall see the smoke of her burning, standing afar off for fear of her torment, saying, Alas, alas, that great city Babylon, that mighty city, for in one hour is thy judgment come. These kings will have benefited personally. They might be some of the kings who have helped uh, lift up and exalt the Antichrist during the tribulation period, I don't know. But they have gained personally, politically, probably financially from the city of Babylon. It's interesting to me that these kings of the world know that Babylon's swift destruction is judgment. Isn't that interesting? Did you see that there? Uh, in verse number 8, the latter part, for, uh, or, excuse me, it's verse number... Verse number 10, the latter part, for in one hour is thy judgment come. They understand she's being judged. In in verse 11, down through verse number 17, as we read it already, the merchants of the earth mourn and weep. Again, it's interesting interesting to me that it's the merchants of the earth that are mourning, the businessmen of the the earth that are mourning and weeping as they consider how they've lost uh, all of their wealth in the city of Babylon. They seem to have cataloged the wealth of Babylon and they're brokenhearted because they've lost so many things. What a vivid picture as you look down through those verses 11, down through verse 17, you can just see the different 
things that are named. What a vivid picture of a commercial city with every luxury a heart can desire. Babylon will have all the beautiful things that people could ever want, but in one hour, her riches, her great riches will be brought to nothing. Warehouses, markets, business, banks will be obliterated, and there will be nothing left but death and destruction. And the merchants are going to watch in horror as their investments and inventories go up in smoke. The mariners of the earth cry and weep in verses 17, the latter part of verse 17, down through verse number 19. It's, I'll, I'll draw your attention just to one thought there where they say, what city is like unto this great city? It will be well known that Babylon is the greatest city on the face of the earth at this time. I hope as we study this, and, and I don't believe any one of us are going to be here during this period of time, uh, If you're a born-again child of God, I don't believe you're going to be around on the face of the earth when these things happen. And so, But there are things that we can take from this. Are you putting your confidence in in your faith, in your riches, in your planning? Or or, or in in, in the Bible teaches us to be wise financially. It gives us instruction and we can follow it and be wise. But is your confidence in your wealth or what you have? Uh, being great, being seen as great by other people? Or, or is your confidence in the Lord? She's going to be the center of worldwide trade, but in one hour she's going to be gone. And you might imagine the ships off of the shore watching in unbelief. And that's what you read in those verses. And they cry. And they're watching in horror as this city, this global uh, capital of the earth is destroyed And then there are going to be some who rejoice. Many are going to mourn, and there are going to be many who rejoice. And those who rejoice are going to be rejoicing in heaven. Notice in verse 20, Rejoice over her, thou heaven, and ye holy apostles and prophets, for God hath avenged you on her. It is interesting that those that are in heaven will be interested in these events that are taking place on earth. Prophets like Jeremiah. Prophets like Ezekiel or Isaiah. And Daniel will have waited a long time for the fulfillment of their words. Heaven will rejoice when Babylon falls. They will rejoice because of what she stands for. What does she stand for? Arrogance? Disobedience? Rebellion? Pride? It's a devilish, satanic system of unrighteousness. And God is going to take it apart piece by piece. And heaven will rejoice. Why? Because the devil is being defeated. Satanic forces are being defeated. You know, it ought ought to trouble us to this extent. Do the people you work with, do they know the truth of the Bible? Have they ever received the Lord Jesus Christ as their personal Savior? Are they born again? Are they looking to God alone to to guide their lives and direct their steps? Because it doesn't matter if how good of a person they may be, or how moral, or how well-meaning, friend. And I guess when we read a passage like this, it kind of tests what we really believe. Do we really believe what Jesus Christ said To his disciples, when he talked to them about 
Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby ye must be saved. Whereby we must be saved. Peter preaching that. Jesus telling them, I am the bread of life. Do you really believe that? That salvation is through Jesus Christ alone? Do you really believe that there is one God? And he is the creator God of heaven and earth. And he is just and he is righteous and he is holy. But he is also merciful and loving and full of grace. And he will save by his, the blood of his own son. Whosoever shall call upon him shall be saved. Do you really believe that? Because we can say amen to those things, but friend, for those folks who do not receive the truth and they rebel against it, and sometimes rebellion is outward and obvious, you know, it has an ugly face to it, and sometimes it's not, it doesn't look that ugly. Sometimes rebellion is found in the hearts of people who are very moral and upstanding and wonderful neighbors and giving people and people who are willing to serve the community. And yet the rebellion against God is, God, I don't need you, thanks, but no thanks, because I'm good enough myself. But it's rebellion nonetheless. I want to end with some thoughts about the Tower of Babel. The Bible isn't entirely clear as to why the Tower of Babel was constructed. Some say it was constructed by those people to get to God. A Josephus, a Jewish historian who lived about the time of the Apostle John, um, wrote that they constructed the Tower of Babel to escape another global flood should God choose to send it. But that isn't the word of God saying that. That's his, his thoughts. Um, some say that they constructed the Tower of Babel to get to heaven and, dis- and overthrow God. Uh, they go on and on what people think. But what is clear about the Tower of Babel and Babylon, the city, and the religion of Babylon uh, that has found its way throughout human history until this day and will exist and dominate during the tribulation period, what is clear is rebellion, disobedience, pride, the exaltation of man, and the bringing down of God. Now, I want to think about this Tower of Babel for just a moment. The ancients often built temples for their gods. They were called ziggurats. Have you ever heard of those before? You might have seen pictures of them. There are temples like this all around the world. South America, uh, Egypt, the Middle East, they're all around the world. Ziggurats were not made for people. They were made for a god. They were places of worship. They were places for the god to come down and a place for that God to dwell in that place. It was very possible, it is very possible that the architect and the builders of the Tower of Babel were not necessarily trying to get themselves up to God as much as they were trying to get a God down to them. The ancients believed that the people were dependent upon the gods to supply their needs And the gods were dependent upon the people for a dwelling place, a kind of codependency. You do something for me, and I'll do something for you. In other words, the Tower of Babel might have been a means to an end. They would create some sacred space for God, and he would come down, and they would benefit. Their initiative was selfish. Their motive was selfish. Getting God to meet our needs by meeting his needs is a wrong understanding of God. 
motivated by a love for self, not a love for God. Why do you do what you do? Why do you attend church services? Do you, do you attend so if you do something for God, he'll do something for you? Because that's not a right perspective or understanding of who God is or how we should love him. Why do you read the Bible? Well, if I read five minutes, God will then do something for me. That's a wrong, selfish motive. The interesting thing is, to me, is in chapter 11, we find this selfish motive of the people of Babel as they erect this this, uh, tower. In the very next chapter, in chapter 12 of the book of Genesis, God makes a covenant with a man named Abraham. And he chooses out for himself a group of people that would later become known as the children of Israel. God's chosen people. You see, God has always wanted a relationship with his creation. He has always wanted to dwell in the midst of his people. He has always wanted to be our God. And in the case of Israel, he wanted them to be his people. God took initiative in chapter 12 of Genesis to establish his own sacred place with his own chosen people. We call it the Abrahamic covenant. And God would then direct them to build a tabernacle. Do you remember that? And then direct them to build a temple. And we remember the Holy of Holies. In 1 Corinthians, in the New Testament, in chapter 6 and verse 19, Paul asked, What? Know ye not that your body is the temple of the Holy Ghost, which is in you, which ye have of God, and ye are not of your own? And in John chapter 14, verses 2 and 3, Jesus comforted his disciples as he was preparing to leave them, and he told them that he was going to prepare a place for them. And he said, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 1, He says, for we know that if our earthly house of this tabernacle, talking about this flesh, be dissolved, we have a building of God and house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. I I, I can't say for sure what the absolute motive of the people who built the Tower of Babel was. I don't think it was to get to heaven and overthrow God. Was it for some to escape a worldwide flood in the future, maybe that was their thinking. It seems to me it might well have been a place of worship. God, you come down and you dwell with us and we'll have a name, we'll make a name for ourselves. We'll be somebody. Everybody will know of us. We'll make a tower in a great city. And we'll do a little something for you and you can do a little something for us. Codependency. And listen, friend, God doesn't depend upon us. But it has always been God's desire to be our God, to be our provider. He is our creator, to be our savior. And it has always been his desire for you and for me to worship him alone as God. And that's that's what should should be our motivation. And anything less, anything less, from uh, then loving him supremely. Anything less than that is a some form of idolatry, creating another God in our heads. 
Or God, I'll do a little bit here. Lord, I'll give a little bit here to you. You know, I hope, hope you saw that. You know, God, I'm doing this for you. So then I should expect you to send something my way. And that, that thinking, that selfish, arrogant thinking that we can barter with God has been a mark of this chapter 17 and 18 of Revelation. This religious system, it turns into full-blown religions like Roman Catholicism. It, it enslaves people under human leadership. And it ought to be rejected by us. And we ought to be on guard for it in our personal lives. Well, I do what I do because I love God and he saved my soul and he made me. And I love him. And there is no other God like him. And he is worthy of my worship. And he is worthy of my praise. He is God alone. Let's pray together. Dear Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this evening and this, these truths and this passage Father, I pray that we would not follow, that, that you would keep us from this, the, the ideas of this false religion in chapter 17 of Revelation. And Lord, the mistakes of this tremendous, wealthy city of Babylon someday to be destroyed in chapter 18. God, may we not walk in her footsteps. Keep us from this way of thinking. Father, thank you for your salvation. Thank you that we can be part of the body of Christ. Father, may we worship you alone for the God, the only God that you are. I praise your name and I worship you. And I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. You are dismissed.